I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 127 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast that was, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilized the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. We're excited to... Uh, Brian's going to be in Mexico. I'm going to be on my couch. But shit, that's coming up. We're excited for that. But the problem with fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic. They only listen to their favorite band and can tell you what color pattern Fishman was wearing on that day and that show. <laughs> but when you ask them about other bands, you say like, hey, you want to go see the guy from the Stone Roses play with Liam Gallagher this summer in some place in downtown Brooklyn? They'll be like, who the hell are you talking about I'd be like oh i guess you don't know the stone roses are oasis that's 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 a shame so i tried getting tickets that that sold out john Squ- i believe john it, man. Squire, there's 90s nostalgia going around john right squire and liam gallagher i figured all right i can get tickets whenever i went to go look at it, just like resale tickets like wow there's like a pretty big market for like friggin Agent Brip-Pop dudes. I mean, I'm I'm that market, but I didn't jump on that. And, eh. You got to be quick, man. The um, the Madchesters are going mad, if you will, and uh, they're going they're going wild, wild for '90s Brit-Pop throwbacks. Yeah, go back to uh, I don't know. I think it's like episode 104 or 105 where we talked about Brit-Pop. Great, great stuff. Um, that was a good episode. We are here not. To talk about Britpop. The only thing that we will talk about English-wise is that uh, as of time of recording, our Gunners just had a huge win against Liverpool. The Wankers. 3-1. We're still in title contention. I don't know if I believe that we're actually going to contend for the title a month, two months, two and a half, three months from now. But it's a lot of fun right now. Uh, Arsenal is making a comeback here as we swing into the elbow of the 2024 EPL season. But we are not here to talk about England is what I was saying. We are here today to take two topics that we love dearly that are the bedrock in a lot of cases for this entire show and talk about them both in comparison and contrast to each other where the Venn diagram meets, where it doesn't, where some of us wish it may have met, where others don't care, where it did things to upset us, but it also wowed us and blew us away. No, we are not talking about the crossover between the New York Mets and Chicago Cubs. We are talking about Pitchfork.com and our favorite band, Fish. We are going to examine both entities for what we love about them, for ways that they interacted. And why are we doing this? 
Well, we're about three weeks out from um, a dark day at pitchfork.com where most of the staff was laid off. A lot of writers that we absolutely love. We have both been readers of this website since the late 90s, early 2000s. It has shaped a lot of our musical interests and it has been where we've taken a lot of bands that we've recommended to you all have come from our reading of this website, but it also is very much outside of the world of fish. And so we've kind of been this bridge between the two and we're going to explore that here today. So lots and lots of fish, but lots and lots of not fish. It's going to be a very cool episode. I'm excited. So some of the themes we're going to talk about in this episode include, uh, what did pitchfork.com mean to you? Do we wish that Pitchfork had covered fish better? And the most indie rock style fish jams ever. And with that, let's get to some indie rock fish. Go back to those gold sounds and keep my back to myself because it's nothing I don't like. Is it a crisis or a boring change when it's central, so essential? It has a nice ring when you laugh the low-life opinions And they're coming to the chorus now I keep my And as the jangly and sloppy guitar of Mr. Trey Anastasio indicated to us, there are some parallels between and some diverging points or converging points between Pitchfork and Fish, and we're going to dive into that today. This is going to be a fun episode. This is going to be very different from anything we've done before. Um, So like I said at the top, a couple weeks ago, We were all kind of minding our own business on, I think it was a Wednesday, Thursday, um, early to mid-January. The record release world is starting to slowly come to life after uh, the holiday break and after um, list season concluded. You don't really expect a lot of big news during this point in time. And word started to trickle out that there had been pretty massive layoffs at pitchfork.com as Condé Nast, the publisher that owns Pitchfork since 2015 was folding Pitchfork into GQ for the next 12 hours. The website was pretty dark, no updates, no Twitter updates. And it was right around the time that we were actually recording an episode and we realized Rather than say something in the episode, we will dedicate a full episode to what was going on. Now, since then, the website has come back to life, I would say about like 45%. It is reviewing albums at a very slow pace, like one to two a day. There's some news that's being updated. 
They've just announced two festivals. So we don't know exactly what's happening with this website, but it is clear that something is changing. Something is shifting. So we wanted to talk about it because this website's meant a lot to us. Yeah, the Pitchfork website currently, it's kind of like um, one of those small private planes that's completely lost cabin pressure. So everyone on the plane is dead, but the plane is still flying. It's like a ghost plane. Like you don't know what's... It's like still updating. There's still... Writers are doing full-fledged reviews. There's still news, albeit the news is largely mainstream-type Grammy-type Taylor Swift-type news. Yes. But we don't know if this stuff is banked or if it's like only eight people in one office cubicle doing it with all freelancers. It's hard to say. But as of right now, it hasn't been completely folded in into GQ. Like, it's not, right. um, you know, you don't... You aren't able to look into your fashion special shirts and ties and what Shiraz goes with, what favorite Pitchfork album, uh, you know. They don't have that yet. And I mean... We G- will, though, soon. We will. Yeah. GQ's got some really good writers as well. So, I mean, I'm... I think the editor-in-chief of Z- GQ's is Zach, Zach Schoenfeld, Zach Barron. Zach- Zach Barron, he's fantastic, really good profile writer. Um, uh, Yeah, I think that, and we'll get into this, like this is where we're at in the world of media right now. We are seeing a lot of flux. We are seeing a lot of layoffs. We are seeing a lot of uh, brands that are not attached to a larger corporate corporate partner just really struggling in the – current, uh, economic situation around media and just, you know, the way media has been for most of our adult lives, which is a good transition into kind of, let's set the table here. The only way to do this is kind of a very simple, straightforward question, because this is a website that has meant a lot to us. Uh, it's meant a lot to, uh, many of our friends. It's meant a lot to a lot of bands that we loved. But I'm curious, Dave, like when you think about this website and your time spent reading it over the last 20 odd years, what does Pitchfork mean to you? It's the cool kids, except when there was a record that I liked and I went and saw that Pitchfork liked it well, I felt vindicated because it has a lot of really good writers. Like you weren't able to write for Pitchfork unless you had a way with words and really cared about your craft. Nobody got away with half-assing it there. Um, there was a different level, it's a different quality of writers throughout its career, but certainly for like the last, I don't know, eight or nine years, it kind of settled into um, a variety of writers, many, not all white dudes, plenty of female writers, plenty of like writers of color, of differing sexual orientations and all like very good. No, I mean, it's when I think of Pitchfork, I think of writers that really cared Like they treated it yeah. like a, like a job. Like there were people hired that worked for Pitchfork. There were lots of freelancers, but they took it very seriously. I mean, some of my favorite writers as of late guys like, um, Sam Sadomsky, he's a younger kid. I think he's like 30 years old, just a brilliant writer if he likes something, I generally found that I would like it because he doesn't suffer fools. Um, Andy Cush from Garcia, people's bass player, when he's not 
putting down the low end, another really excellent writer. Um, Jillian Mapes, also very, very good. Um, Lindsay Zolads did write for Pitchfork, and I tried for the New York Times. I mean, you know, I could just go down the list of excellent like writers and critics. But, you know, it just it had a degree of quality. I mean, it was certainly, you know, it got... It was a bit snooty, a little bit pretentious from time to time, but especially in the later days, people cared. People cared about the craft. And it was often imitated, but never replicated. Yeah, I... Yeah, I, I echo a lot of that. I mean, I think for me... You know, growing up in the 90s and being into classic rock... Rolling Stone was still the magazine that right. kind of seemed to set the bar for where music was going. And even into the late 90s, some of their cover stories were really big. Some of their reviews were really important. Um, it was still kind of the bellwether for critical reception. When I got into college and this whole world kind of opened up to me in terms of uh, you know, I'd, I'd always been friends with people based in large part on shared musical taste. Like one of my best friends, shout out to Rob Brennan met because of music and our friendship has only grown as a result of music. And, you know, at this point in our lives, there's a lot more that is a part of our friendship, but like music is always kind of at its core. When I got to college, like that only expanded and the people I hung out with were really into music I started liking to go to record stores that were more available living in a small college town than the suburban town I grew up in and discovering pitchfork, you know, in my sophomore or junior year of college by way of, um, arcade fires funeral, it made me realize that a, there were people around my age that had the perspective on music that I had read about via my dad's music subscription to Rolling Stone, but it also did something bigger for me, which was it. And this is the thing I always will love about pitchfork. There is a desire to never stop listening and always be discovering new music. And that to that point, my life was not totally a concept that I was really into or living by. Like for me, you got a really good, album by a band and you just listen to that. And like, that was all you listened to. And then you got another one. And like, that was my process for most of like high school and early college of listening to music was just kind of like, I liked what I liked in the moment and I was on repetition. And then I kind of realized that there was this other world where people would listen to a record and then be like, what five bands influence this record? Okay. And then they'd go and listen to that. Okay. What five bands influence that record? And you go and you listen to that. You get this like catalog amassed and you'd have lists of why you thought this, this way, why you thought this was way. It, it basically like switched on how I've been listening to music for the last 20 years and made it much more of a kind of adventure and a cataloging experience of, you know, you think of like a 19th century arborist, you know, someone who's like trying to document all the the ferns in the South Pacific and, oh my God, can you believe there's like 16 different types of this grass? <laughs> like I realized that that was a thing that you could do with music and it became this just like exciting, unending 
world of discovery that I still find myself trapped in. So like at, at its core, that's what like pitchfork has always meant for me is like unlocking that door. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it paved the way. I mean, you had pitchfork and then that got followed by MP3 blogs in the mid two thousands. And then that kind of got followed by podcasts. It seems like everyone has their own niche blog. Now things like, you know, Raven sings the blues, things like Aquarium Drunker. I mean, none of that could have existed without Pitchfork. Pitchfork kind right. of gave people the ability to go out and, like, you know, make things even more niche, take things that they like, really get into them, turn them inside out. Because now, while Pitchfork still exists in some shape or form, I mean, there's so many other blogs, I mean, so many other websites, so many other ways out there that you can get music. Plus the advent of streaming. So that was, I mean, I'll tell you, I first discovered Pitchfork in, I think, 1999. And what's pretty funny is the way I discovered it was they had a list of, like, a tongue-in-cheek list of the 50 worst guitar solos, one of which happened to be (laughs) Fish, Demand, which is funny for, like, a variety of reasons. Of all, like, the trade guitar solos you pick out, like the last song in the hoist that they don't ever play anymore. Like, okay. But I remember one minute random song. Yeah. Right. May as well keep your belly full. So that got me to go to pitchfork. And then once I got past that list, I'm like, Oh wait, this is tons and tons of record reviews, often very pithy and humorous. And most of done by one or three people because Pitchfork from 1999 to 2001 or so is kind of a repository for this guy named Brent DiCrescenzo, which we will get to, wrote most of the reviews. And um, it kind of just grew from there, but almost because at that time there was Rolling Stone, there was Spin, there was like the college weeklies that did music that I was writing for, but Pitchfork was kind of... um, Almost kind of like a turd thrown in their punch bowl. It was pretty transgressive, like around 1999. Yeah, and it was for for a while through that first half decade. It was kind of, is this actually going to be something long term, or is this just kind of like a hobby that's going to burn out? And I feel right. like around 2004, 2005, things started to change as they started breaking bands. Um, I would say early 2000s, they were very much on the elevating albums like Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot, and Kid A, which became bigger albums outside of the indie rock world. But I mean, it's crazy to think that by 2009, they were kind of the, I mean, they were the destination for music criticism on the internet. And obviously there have been sites that have started and or have continued and have been, um, it's not as important, high quality, you know, thinking of like stereo gum, consequence of sound, uh, aquarium drunkard, as you mentioned. Um, I don't think a lot of those exist without the universe that pitchfork kind of created. Yeah. So at its heart, the thing that made pitchfork special, at least early on, and I would say probably up until the mid 2010s, um, were their music reviews, their album reviews. They were, as you said, opinionated, pithy, 
They had a sense of humor that was very, very late nineties, early two thousands kind of cross generations in terms of this very skeptical view of authority, skeptical view, um, towards, uh, politics, not necessarily like counterculture in the way that we were called the sixties and hippies. It was a bit more angry, a bit more urbanized, um, but also had, you know, a lot of layers to it. And a lot of the record reviews that came out of that era, um, really seemed to, you know, reflect the voice of that period in time, you know, from a youth standpoint, there've been great reviews uh, of course uh, ever since, but we wanted to talk through some of our favorite reviews. Let's kind of go back and forth here. I think we each have, uh, four or five reviews to share. Um, Dave, what is the first review you want to talk about that, has always stuck with you and kind of what are, what, what has always been a big part of it for you? Um, one that immediately comes to mind is the review of the self-titled album, the debut album by the beta band written by Brent DiCrescenzo. He was a huge fan of the beta band and like his writing about the beta band kind of got me to listen to them just kind of in the same way that he did um, a review that you were going to talk about. People often think of the first Beta Band record as being the three EPs, but that's a, a compilation. They actually had a full debut album that I believe came out in 2000, which was seen as a bit of a mess, a bit of strange comedy. Not, It's not as good as the three EPs, but it's also pretty fantastic in its own right, and he was kind of only one of the few reviewers to actually give Beta Band their props. I think he did it in sort of like, it was a very fantastical style of writing. He talked about like waking up in, in a land of mirth and wonder where this band, this special band, was pouring music into his ears. I mean, I don't know exactly what it was, but it made me think like, wow, I have to get on this. This is a guy who I res opinions I respect. And if he likes something that much, it's probably good. And it was. And that was kind of what a really good Pitchfork reviewer does. It's that you began to trust these people, thinking that, all right, if I like something this person likes and they're really, really into this album, there's got to be something there. And he, uh, he in particular, I think... Um, as of like in the mid 2010s, like 2013, I think he was the head music editor of like Time Out Chicago. I have no idea if he still is, but at least as of like 10 years ago, he was still doing um, some form of like music criticism that probably paid a lot better than working at Pitchfork in 2000. I have, I, I always, every time I go back to Chicago and if I ever go and see like a smaller rock show, I always hope that he is uh, just kind of lurking in the background because uh, who knows, who knows what he's doing, but excellent writer. So my first review I wanted to share here um, comes from my favorite writer at Pitchfork, Mark, Mark Richardson, who um, was editor in chief for a number of years, but just like a fantastic writer who seemed to bridge the gap between <clears throat> He always felt to me like the writer at Pitchfork who could have written at Rolling Stone. Like he could have spoken to an older generation in a way about music that there wasn't so much like um, Kill Daddy in in his writing. It was more, 
he looked at music from like a larger appreciation standpoint in the way that uh, I, I always read boomer writers. And I mean that entirely as a compliment. Um, but in the spring of 2007, I was living in easily the best apartment I will ever live in in my entire life. I had bay windows that looked out at three mountain peaks. I lived right across the corner from a French bakery, right around the corner from my favorite brewery of all time, kitty corner to some excellent pizza, uh, amazing biking trails right near me. I could dip into the river to kayak. Uh, I had my favorite breakfast place right around the corner. And I also had my first favorite record shop, Ear Candy Music, right down the street from where I lived. And I would go there on Saturday mornings. I'd go and get coffee, get a pastry, and go to the record shop. And I would spend money that I did not have on records. And I would spend money based on reading reviews on Pitchfork. And I remember three days after my 22nd birthday waking up, I was on spring break. I was going to be in Missoula for a couple of days and then drive to Sun Valley with my brother to go skiing with my dad. And I got up and I read this review of Panda Bear's Person Pitch. And I immediately walked down to this record store, bought the record, came back, had no idea what I was in for, and it blew my mind. And things about it that blew my mind, just looking at this review, I just want to read a small segment here. Uh... Most of the record consists of intricately constructed, heavily layered, and highly repetitive loops on top of which Lennox, Noah Lennox, that is, sings oddly familiar and touching melodies. But despite its grounding in guitar pop, person pitch isn't likely to be mistaken for the work of a band. It sounds like what it is. One guy alone in his bedroom, trolling through music history, picking and choosing bits to make something deeply personal and all his own. The repetition of music here, though probably engineered by a computer, has a strange analog quality. You can almost see the turntables rotating on the opening Comfianautica. Like stuff like that, that like Mark Richardson could write about the experience of discovering music and making music, and you can like see what he's writing in front of your face. That just blew my head apart. And um, I just have like a really wonderful memory of reading this, going and buying the record, and just like having something completely unknown added to my life. What do you got next? I have the review of Slater Kinney's One Beat by your friend of mine, Rob Mitchum. Before he was uh, documenting every fish show on his 25th anniversary, he was a pretty frequent contributor to Pitchfork. And this review of Slater Kinney's album from 2020, uh, 2002, it was a very glowing review from a guy who was always kind of skeptical from about Slater Kinney, as I was at that time. He described the riffs as a log flume ride. He said, it's a log flume ride, comma, a log flume ride, people. And yeah, <laughs> that's what Slater Kinney at her best does sound. They do sound like a log flume ride, like you're at... Splash Mountain going down the Lago and ah, you, uh, <laughs> I just thought that was a perfect analogy for that record and that band. And I wasn't able ever to listen to Slater Kinney after that without imagining myself like on a log flume ride. So the Slater Kinney record that came out before that, All Hands on the Bad One, was written by, yes, Brent Crescenzo. I think he said, like, the only band in American music that compares is Fugazi. 
and the McDarling twins. And he's definitely kind of right that, like, you know, classic Slater Kinney from 2000 does have a lot in common with classic Fugazi being like uh, Ian McKay and Guy Guy Picciotto is very much like um, Carrie Brownstein and. Oh my goodness, I'm blanking on. Carrie Brownstein, Janet Wise, and Corin Tucker. Yes, Corin Tucker of like Slater Kinney, obviously. Um, yeah, so when Rob Mitchum wrote about the follow-up record, One Beat, I just thought it kind of really dovetailed nicely with the previous review and put log plumes in my head. Well-written, fun review, just like his fish reviews, which are well-written and fun. So, Yeah, Rob has a way of being very conversational and knowledgeable at the same time in his writing or speaking about music and uh, always loved his reviews, even if he, well, one of my favorites of his was uh, um, Woods is at Echo Lake where he just, where he compared Woods to Neil Young and the mm. Grateful Dead. And I would, and it was the first time I'd read Rob's writing. And I was like, or that I recall. And I was like, what the hell? Like there's someone on Pitchfork writing about jam bands and uh, indie rock. More on that later. Um, my next one is, uh, a review of an album that I, I, I listened to for the first time today in probably eight years. And, um, sorry to say it does not hit the way that it did when I was, uh, 27 years old, but the <laughs> review holds up and that is uh, magical clouds impersonator written by one of my favorite writers at pitchfork, Jason green. And I'm just going to read the, uh, first paragraph because I remember reading this, uh, in, 2013 and just being like a what a fucking awesome way to write about an album and b i have to hear that album right now uh so the first paragraph is imagine someone at your otherwise mundane party has dropped ecstasy he's the only one there who has done so flushed sweaty intense he stares everyone directly in the eyes and says things like i see this light coming from behind and growing to an enormous size this is magic. Ignoring everyone's obvious discomfort, he presses on mercilessly. Hey, mister, he asks, locking eyes with you. Don't you want to be right here? And it was a great way to combine these like very self-serious lyrics that come out of Devin Welsh over like really pretty, simplistic, ambient music with writing that just like caught you immediately. Um, so I just, I remember reading that. I remember it being my introduction to Jason green, just a fantastic writer. And, um, yeah, love that. Love that stuff. What do you got next? Next is a album by the band McCluskey, Andy Falcus, who, uh, I love McCluskey. And the first time I heard about them was reading the review of their second album called do Dallas written by a fellow named Chris Dolan. I'm not quite sure what happened to him. I know he wrote a lot of Pitchfork reviews, I think from like around 2002 to 2005. So, yeah. read a part of the review. Buzzing through two-minute power punk tunes like Team Boys Who Found a Landmine and Can't Wait to Huck Rocks at It. McCluskey are, more than anything, tremendous stupid fun. And no question about it, they've got impact like knocking skulls in a bar fight. And I thought, ooh, that's where I'm at. That sounds awesome. And that 
record does indeed sound like obnoxious logger louts who found a landmine and want to fucking throw rocks at it to see what happens. That's um, they were a power trio. That album was recorded by Steve Albini, and it's just this catchy, awesome. They're kind of assholes, but they're assholes that I like. And that was I actually saw the final McCluskey show. I was visiting my sister, who was doing student teaching in London at the time, and so we all went to go see her over Thanksgiving in 2004, and McCluskey were playing at ULU, the University of London Union. It was actually a show that was was released, and I think like a posthumous, like three CD set of some sort. And having seen them before in the States, I saw them at Mercury Lounge in New York City, maybe 70 people were there. And they were annoyed, and the audience was annoyed. It wasn't a good show. But to see them in London, on the UK, in their home turf, I mean, they're Welsh, but it was like the Beatles. There were kids poking up and down to every word. I'm like, this is one of the greatest rock shows I've ever seen. These British college kids fucking appreciate McCluskey. And I get home all excited, and then they broke up like six weeks later. So, uh, singer, writer, misanthrope, Andy Falcus went on to, he had a project called Future of the Left, which had McCluskey's drummer. He had a project called Christian Fitness. And now he basically is touring as McCluskey, basically with two thirds of the original lineup and a different bass player. He's going to be playing McCluskey songs and that's coming to New York in March. I'm definitely going to try to go. But that was a band I had... Never heard it before Pitchfork, and the review made it seem like it was entirely up my alley, and it was. Wait, let me see. Right. Despite the band's tightrope tension, however, their sense of humor may be the most successful element. These guys are just plain obnoxious. Not that they crack first-grade jokes about herpes and blood farts. They just have a way of combining crass taunts and awesome non-sequiturs. Or the line from the single, To Hell With Good Intentions, My love is bigger than your love, We take more drugs than a touring funk band, Sing it! So, that's a fantastic band. Thanks, Chris Allen. Thanks, Pitchfork. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I... So... Pretty fascinating to me to see. Like you would watch a writer on Pitchfork start to write a bunch of reviews, and some of them have ended up staying. Um, you have people like Ian Cohen who have gone on to other careers but still write extensively for the site. Um, but you had two writers uh, that basically use Pitchfork as this leaping off point to some of the most prominent music criticism roles in, um, it, I mean, in, in larger music, in the larger music industry, in the larger critical industry. Uh, Amanda Petrusic, who now writes for The New Yorker, and Lindsay Zolads, uh, who writes for The New York Times. She is one of the chief music critics there. 
And one of the first reviews I remember reading from her was uh, Julia Holter's Loud City song from August 2013. I think she'd been writing pretty extensively for Pitchfork for the last two years at that point in time. But like 2013 is where if you go through their like best of list, if you go through the best new music, like she gets some really, really big headlines uh, during that during that period. And it's also, we'll talk about this in a second, but you know, probably my favorite period for Pitchfork. But up until this point, I had been like really curious about Julie Holter. She's this kind of avant pop singer from Los Angeles, um, kind of writes lyrically in the way that like Scott Walker did where like, I have absolutely no fucking clue what her songs are about, but they are about something. And I don't really care what they're about. I kind of just like to live in the world that she sings about. Um, musically, she writes some of the most fascinating, um, you know, this like glossy, but Baroque avant-garde pop music that I, I I feel like I just hear extremely rare. Um, I feel like every time I listen to her music, I'm discovering something new and I feel somewhat lost kind of stumbling through the world that she makes. Um, but this review for an 8.6 album that came out in August, 2013, um, the album is, uh, um, Julia's interpretation of the 1958 musical Gigi. Um, and it's also a testament to Los Angeles. And as someone who spent a lot of the last year watching old movies, a lot of old musicals, um, who loves Los Angeles and, uh, in a different life would move to Los Angeles. Um, a record like this just sounds like, you know, this kind of dream space for me in a, in a way that I love. And just like, I remember reading this review and finally feeling like I understood what I was looking for in Julia Holter's music. And it was this very mysterious thing for a long time. And it was one of those things that, um, pitchfork writers, the best of them could do really well is that they could break down a record for you that was deliberately complicated and deliberately kind of uh, mysterious in a way that you weren't supposed to be able to categorize it or understand it right out the gates. And they wrote about it in a way that made it make sense. Mark Richardson did this really well. Lindsay Zolads did this really well. And uh, for me, for an artist I was curious about, I'd listened to her first couple records, um, but didn't totally know like where she fit my overall appreciation and what I was interested in, it made this make sense and make kind of unlock something and help me continue to move forward as a, uh, music listener, as you know, definitely a critical thinker about music. Um, we both have one more and then we have one that we're going to talk about together because I don't want to let you, uh, I know you have thoughts on it as well. So give me your last one here. Last one is Lou Reed's album from 2000 ecstasy. Written by uh, Kristen Sage Rockerman, who I think around 2000, 2001 had a handful, had a bunch of reviews. Um, nothing beyond that. I think she may have been like an executive editor at, at like Details Magazine after the fact. Um, everything she wrote was very droll and kind of very dry. Very dry sense of humor. Clearly... Knew a lot about music, Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, but just was kind of presented and kind of like, not so much wink-wink as just, 
Like I remember in the early days of Pitchfork, most of the reviews before you clicked on them, they had like one or two sentences that kind of showed you what you were in for. And with that review, I think the sentence was, let's see you be this fucked up at age 58, which <laughs> that's about right. And she says here, his limited vocal range has always straddled the line between singing and speaking, maintains its uncanny ability to compel you to listen to his stories. Just now, those stories belong to a 58-year-old. This might explain the cover photo, which doubles as a shot of a man in, quote, ecstasy and a bear ad. Lou's eyes are closed, his lips are parted, his head is thrown back while a red laser darts through his neck. I can't imagine what's going on here. Regardless, the Danish are still listening, and for a few more rotations, so am I. The Danish being, she starts off the review basically talking about Denmark and how this album is actually in the top 20 in Denmark somehow so <laughs> that's how she brings it back around to the danish um i can tell you now that i know with that cover photo it's kind of gross but the guy taking the photo basically told lou reed like i want you to masturbate and i will capture your photo at that moment of like ecstasy when when the peak occurs so that's how he got him throwing back his head in ecstasy on, uh, but I don't think that was common knowledge back in 2000. So that was, I mean, the review, it wasn't like, you know, not terribly special and not epic, but uh, the style of the author was kind of a very dry sense of humor that I tend to gravitate to. So that one always kind of stuck in the back of my mind. And ecstasy is a pretty good record. I mean, if you're listening to an original, I think it was actually. It turned out to be Lou Reed's last album of fully, like, original material. Um, he put out some live records. He did that weird shit with Metallica, Lulu. I think he did an interpretation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. But for just, like, a capital L, all original Lou Reed album, I think Ecstasy was the last one. And it's uh, it's okay. It's got about four or five songs that I go back to in a lot of dreck. It's like over 70 minutes, but he was 58 years old. They did a good job of even in criticism, giving you the full picture of where an aging artist was. It yeah. wasn't just like this quick snapshot. It was, it was a, it was a deep picture. No, I was going to say in that review kind of emphasized how, you know, his stories now are about domesticity and living with Laurie Anderson and fighting with your spouse and on one song, the future farmers of America, but you know, you no longer, he's not singing about, you know, whatever it was that Lou Reed sang about doing heroin, like an alleyway back in like third street and Avenue B in like 1972. Like, you know, he's, he's older and wiser. Yeah. So if Pitchfork was really good at talking about um, they shone a light on the artists that paved the way to indie, even if those artists were not making popular music anymore, relatively speaking, perhaps what they were best known for was breaking artists. And um, in the case I'm going to talk about, they didn't necessarily break an artist because this artist had already been fairly successful to this point in time, but they kind of 
brought this artist in under their wing and gave them an air of credibility that made them seem extremely important to young people. And I don't think without Pitchfork providing this band kind of the pedestal that they gave them after this record that they would have meant as much to millennials uh, as they've aged and become kind of the millennial classic rock band, if you will. And that is, of course, Wilco, and that is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, Talk about Rob Mitchum. Uh, You know, the man coined the term dad rock with Sky Blue Sky. Uh, I still don't totally understand. I've asked him about it. I still don't totally understand his A Ghost is Born take. Um, he did not write the review for this though. Uh, he wrote, uh, he wrote, uh, more, he wrote the next two album reviews for, for Wilco, but this review for Yankee hotel Foxtrot, which came out in April of 2002 was written by Brent S. Sirota, which I, I don't know where, what that dude is doing from a music standpoint. Um, it's a really good review. This is a review. I remember reading, um, this might've been the very first pitchfork review I read. Um, a friend sent it to me in an email or over like an AIM chat. I had gotten into Wilco the previous fall. Uh, my cousin at Thanksgiving burned me a CD copy of Summer Teeth. And I thought it was the coolest album I'd ever heard because it sounded like the fucking Beatles, but in the nineties, I was like, why, why am I not hearing this on the radio? And this was like a very critical moment of realizing that like I needed to be seeking out music. Huge but, Abbey Road vibes in Summer Teeth. Huge, huge. Um, I was unaware of what was going on with Wilco at, in 2001 and the fact that their review, their record had been denied by their record label. They released on bootleg. They played all the songs live. And then it wasn't until the following spring that it formally came out. And this review, you go back and you read this review and it really sounds like a place in time. And it really sounds like an us against them type of scenario that you now see where the music industry is 22 years later. And you kind of realize like the artist lost in a lot of ways. And this was a critical breaking point of you needed a fan base to really embrace you and really prop you up because your label was not going to do that for you. That was not going to be uh, a reliable option for you. But in all of this, Wilco made what is my favorite record of all time. And this review kind of summarizes a lot of what I love about this album and the the mystique and the mystery behind it, but also, you know, the brilliant music that's made in it. Um, and I'll just read just a little bit of this. Uh, the, the unique circumstances of Yankee hotel Foxtrot's long deliverance make for more than just pointless disc jockey chatter before spinning heavy metal drummer. And and like lines like that felt like just a thumb in the nose or thumb in the eye of, um, older generations writing about and talking about music in a way that I just really appreciated when I read this as a younger person, the long delay in streaming audio conspired to ensure that everyone in the world has already heard Yankee hotel Foxtrot in part, if not its entirety, vast digital uh, pre-circulation corporate controversy and buzz like a beard of bees have rendered all reviews afterthoughts at best. But myth is always an afterthought. And these days, the motif I like chewing on best is without question that of the unlikely hero. 
Who would have predicted an album of this magnitude from Wilco? Uh, He goes on to say, of course, Summer Teeth was a strange and majestic, albeit dark deviation from the all-country genre Jeff Jeff Tweedy co-invented. But since Yankee Old Tall Foxtrot has retroactively become more of a harbinger of things to come. So does Yankee Hotel Foxtrot justify the controversy, delay, and buzz? Everyone, I think, already knows the answer is yes. All I can offer is me too and reiterate. After a half a year living with a bootleg copy, the music remains revelatory. Complex and dangerously catchy, lyrically sophisticated and provocative, noisy and somehow serene. Wilco's aging new album is simply a masterpiece. It is equally magnificent in headphones, cars, and parties. And as anyone who's seen the mixed bag crowd at Wilco's shows knows, you will find a home in the collection of hippies, frat boys, acid-eating prep schoolers, and the record store uh, uh, and the record store appreciators of the idiocracy. No one is too good for this album. It is better than all of us. That kind of like energy around a record, it just like that says it all. So, um, we have one more we want to discuss, and we have a few questions before we get into uh, the fish. There is one review that I think is probably more famous than any other, but it summarizes, I feel like, the album I think about whenever I think of Pitchfork, and that is Brent D. Crescenjo's uh, review of Radiohead's Kid A, which was a 10.0, back when they fucking gave 10.0s out with a little bit more frequency than we do over the last decade. And I think that there are a couple since then that, deserve 10.0, but that's a topic for a different day. Dave, what do you think about this review? Um, how did this make you think about this album? How did this make you think about the site? Well, it's probably best to quote for a minute. It's highly quotable. The experience and emotions tied to listening to Kid A are like witnessing the stillborn birth of a child while simultaneously having the opportunity to see her play in the afterlife on IMAX. I mean, where do you go with that? <laughs> yeah, if you could like pour your heart and soul into like that's one of the instances where it almost feels like the record review, if you read the whole thing, is as much as a different piece of art than the album. But right, you know, he obviously he felt the guy felt very, very, very strongly about this album, and with good reason. I mean, that kid A is a watershed. Arguably the greatest, you know, one of the greatest albums to come along in my existence. That's like our Sgt. Pepper is in a way Kid A. And the Pitchfork Review lives up to the challenge. Like it's really, um, you know, instead of me reading it, it was just Pitchfork at its best saying a very, very enthusiastic piece of creative writing that leaves no question as to where the critic stands with his feelings towards an album. And with a guy like Brent D. Christenjo, he's got, I found his taste to be pretty much impeccable. So I felt, all right, if this guy likes this album this much, there's no way it's not good. And fuck, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah there's no, yeah. there's no way. Yeah, this, so I listened to an alternative rock radio station in the late 90s, and that was my, entryway into music at that point in my life and the band that i still listen to on a regular basis from that period is radiohead 
And when I was listening to that station, OK Computer had just come out. And I remember being blown away that there were like five great singles that they were playing off of OK Computer. But I still remember like two years go by, the name Radiohead is not really uttered other than randomly they'll play Karma Police. Um, And it's announced in summer 2000 that there was a new Radiohead album coming out, something like that. And at the time the station had morphed into kind of a new metal station. And I was just starting to like get out of it. Cause I just, that wasn't where my headspace was at. Um, and I remember the discourse around it was Radioheads put their guitars down and made a revolutionary album. No and guitars. I remember being, you know, really blown away. No right. guitars. I remember being really blown away by it. And of course the first single that they played was, uh, optimistic, which is the most guitar heavy song on the entire album. Um, but you know, I, I bring that up because like kid a is kind of, I've said this a few times, but like kid a is one of these like breaking points for me where I realize like appreciating an album like that leads me down one track of, you know, where I'm going to consume music from, where I'm going to read reviews from versus, you know, if I had, not wanted to hear Radiohead evolve in that way. And to your point, this review, which I remember, I did not read in the moment. I went back and listened and read uh, years later. Cause I remember they had this as the number one album of the two thousands when they released their top 200 albums, of the two thousands list. I remember thinking that was really wild, but also like that re- refocused how I thought about um, the decade that, you know, I'd gone to college in and grown up in. Um, but I wanted to just read a little bit about this, uh, from this review, um, with good reason, I suspect radio had to possess incomprehensible powers. The evidence is only compounded with kid a, the rubber match in the band's legacy, an album with, which completely obliterates how albums and Radiohead themselves will be considered. Even the heralded okay computer has been nudged down one spot in Valhalla. Kid a makes rock and roll childish considerations on its merits as quote rock i.e its radio fodder potential its guitar riffs and hooks are pointless comparing this to other albums is like comparing an aquarium to blue construction paper (laughs) 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 and not because it's jazz or fusion or ambient or electronic classifications don't come to mind once deep inside this expansive hypnotic world Ransom, the uh, philologist hero of C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, who is kidnapped and taken to another planet, initially finds his scholarship useless in his new surroundings and just tries to survive in the beautiful new world. This is an emotional, psychological experience. Kid A sounds like a clouded brain trying to recall an alien abduction. Like, come on. Yeah. Like, that's it. That's it right there. And that's, that's how this record feels. I mean, this record, um, you know, it puts you on a different planet and the review does the same. So, um, yeah, so, so many good reviews. I mean, there are reviews that we just didn't even talk about because of the, the purpose of time. And we, we've gone so deep here on these because clearly these reviews, these records have had a huge impact on our lives. The one thing just kind of shifting gears that is fascinating about Pitchfork is for however much I loved about this site, there were things that I, and it's increasingly lately, feel like they got wrong. 
And we're going to share one review that we think that they got wrong and that we would have written differently if we'd been writing for the site. What do you have, Dave, as the um, record that Pitchfork reviewed incorrectly? This is kind of nitpicky on my part, but um, the Slater Kinney album, The Center Won't Hold which was the album that Janet Weiss hated so much she basically left the band despite having played drums on it. That was reviewed by Karen Rose. Uh, she's not a staff member at Pitchfork. She's a freelancer. She's really a Bruce Springsteen scholar. She's big Pearl Jam fan, kind of in these big classic rock type bands. I know she, she does things like for New York Magazine, thinks she reviewed every Springsteen song, every U2 song. She used to run uh, the Pearl Jam fan website, Five Horizons. So very good writer, knows her stuff. I think she gave this record a 7.9, and it's one of my least favorite records of the past 20 years. It's just, I don't think she understands Slater Kinney. <laughs> all I have to say about it because anyone with <laughs> with a pair of ears know this record's fucking terrible and it set them off in a bad path which they never completely recovered I don't mind their latest record Little Rope it's probably their best since when Janet Weiss was a card carry member of that band not the same but yeah I mean it's not badly written but it's Pierre kind of, she really had no idea what she was talking about with regards to this band. But when she, I mean, I think she reviewed, the most recent review she did might have been um, the album where you 2 try to like reinterpret their hits acoustically. And the gist of the review is basically this has no reason to exist. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't. That's right. <laughs> but it she's not. Uh, Even I didn't make it all the way through that record, yeah. Dave. Even I. But. Yeah, Karen Rose doesn't know Slater Kinney. Holy fucking shit that she knows Springsteen. Probably, maybe more so than anybody else on this planet, that she understands Bruce Springsteen. Apologies to uh, Sam Sadomsky. Apologies to Sam Sadomsky and Steve Hyden, who is releasing a book on Bruce Springsteen in two months. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I can't wait. Um, Okay, so this is funny, because when I put this category up, I didn't give any sort of like qualifications of um is this a record that you wish they had reviewed higher or lower and i didn't know if you put yours on for the same reason i did but clearly you did um which is great we're in the same boat here my choice is arcade fires reflector which was reviewed by Lindsay zolads who i just praised i think she's an amazing writer um so at the time that this record came out, this record came out in the fall of 2013. Um, I was writing a lot about music at the time. I was listening to a ton of music. I was in Korea. So I had just like so much time and freedom to do whatever the fuck I wanted. It was the absolute best. And I just don't have anything like that right now. And what did I do in my free time? I watched a lot of basketball. I watched a lot of movies. I ran a lot. I listened to podcasts. I read a lot of books. I listened to a lot of music and I was really invested in like where my taste was developing as a listener. And 2013 was a fantastic year for this. And all throughout 2013, we had this great anticipation because fucking Arcade Fire was making a record and James Murphy was on this record. And, and it was like in, 
inspired by Brian Eno. And it was this like end of the world dance party record, double album. Holy fuck. I was so excited for this album. I, I, I was like, I mean, the, I mentioned this earlier. Funeral was this massive record that came out in early fall 2004. I was a sophomore in college. I was living in my first house outside of the dorms with two of my buddies. We played that record all the time. It became this like defining record for my college experience. Um, Neon Bible, they perform uh, Keep the Car Running on that tour with Bruce Springsteen speaking of, and it's this like moment of like, Oh my God, my parents' favorite musician is playing with one of my favorite bands. It's so amazing. Then the suburbs comes out and it like perfectly describes what my childhood was. And like these feelings I had as I was still trying to like break out of, uh, you know, where I grew up and trying to like go out on my own path. And this band is putting out a dance space, double album, at the end of the year, that has already been a fantastic year of music. The Nationals put out a great record. Vampire Weekends put out a great record. It's been an amazing year for music. And then they put out this record. And the first time I listened to it, I fucking hated it. It sounded pretentious. And it sounded like they were trying to put on different clothes and a different outfit that didn't totally fit them. And the grooves I didn't really care for. And it just sounded bloated in a way that like I've never been able to appreciate. And yet while I hated this record, everybody around me loved this record. And it, it made me realize it was, it was like a line in the sand moment for me. I know you want to say something. Yeah. I reviewed that record for coatmachineglow.com. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. I don't like it now, but I definitely was more lukewarm on it than this review certainly we if we had i don't know if we ever interacted in 2013 we probably did ambiently i don't think we ever really like started interacting until like 2014 2015 but man 28 year old brian and 34 year old dave neither of which having kids listening to a lot of music while I have time in Korea, we would have made like a hundred podcasts that year. It would have been amazing. Um, but this, and I just want to read this because this is like the defining paragraph for me. Uh, Lindsay writes, reflectors sound is lush and imaginative, but never in a way that suffocates you with the fumes of its polish. It's limber and loose as though the songs were performed live. The arrangements breathe, seethe and sweat. As their detractors will be quick to point out, Arcade's fire, Arcade Fire's greatest crime in the past has been sometimes coming off too stately and self-serious. The suburbs in particular had a buttoned-up quality that failed to capture the frenzied energy of their live shows, but on the first half of Reflector, they often feel like they're deflating their own sense of grandeur. It's nice to hear a band that showed up on the scene quite literally dressed for a funeral, now sounding like they're having at least a little fun. I don't know, man, if it's just me, I just hear the exact opposite. I hear a band that is very self-important. It feels like the first U2 Arcade Fire record where it's like rock music can save the world type of mindset that I just, I, I, I hate. And I did not get it at the time. I don't get it today. And I guess my, my rationale for putting it on here is like, this felt like a demarcation point for me with Pitchfork in some ways where I wish I wished that they had taken a different stance towards this record. I, I don't know. It, it feels like 
She'd probably take that back if she could. You would, yeah, you would imagine so. Yep. Just like the way that things have gone, but from a musical standpoint, it just felt like a statement could have been made that this is not how a band should continue evolving, and yet they just bought it into the hype, and I just I couldn't handle it. Side B is okay. That's got the stuff that sounds like, like Afterlife sounds like a New Order remix. Hey Orpheus, yes. but by and large, it was kind of the beginning of the end for Arcade Fire. Yeah. So. We have talked about a lot of records here. Um, we have a few just kind of like questions that we want to go back and forth with from a discussion point standpoint before we get into a little bit of music. Um, big picture, stepping back, what was your favorite era of Pitchfork and why? I really like 2000 to 2005. That was when you had writers that were both extremely enthusiastic and unafraid to drop the hammer if need be. This is the point Pitchfork's influence was increasing to the point that they actually had some king-making or king-destroying ability. This is right before MP3 blogs would taken over, and it was kind of like the wild, wild west in the sense that there wasn't yeah. much to reel these writers in. This is the area era where they would drop 0.0 like reviews. This is when... Um, <laughs> Liz Fair's makeover, her first Liz Fair, Liz Fair got a 0.0. And yeah, that's a bad album. That's not good. I don't know if it's 0.0. But then more interestingly, Travis Morrison from the Dismemberment Plan, who a band who was, was Pitchfork Darlings with uh, Emergency and I and the album Change in 2001, both of which are fantastic. He put out a solo record uh, that Chris Darlin reviewed in 2004 called Travistan that got a 0.0. And when that happened, like some record stores wouldn't carry it. Um, I think he might have had the canceled tour dates. And Travistan's not a great album. It's definitely not a 0.0. It has uh, a lot more dad jokes that were ever on Dismemberment Plan Records. But the way it's written, you would think that Travis Morrison like ran over the author's dog with a car. Like it's <laughs> it crosses <laughs> it crosses over the line from simply this isn't good to where like the guy felt like personally offended, like Travis Morrison like had it in for him, the dismemberment plan fan, by putting out this record. And that that review wasn't very that that's that just wasn't fighting fair. And that's what a lot of the reviews are like in 2000 to 2005 with great power comes great responsibility. And some artists really learned to hate pitchfork because that was when they could really shine your record and it would affect your record sales. Much like if you got like two stars in Rolling Stone back in say 1994, that was a big deal because people cared about Rolling right. Stone, you know, and like Tori Amos boys for Pele got like two stars, I think in, 1995, when that record came out, I was like, ooh, this maybe this isn't good. Rolling Stone got that wrong. Boys for Paley is a great record. But yeah, that was, that kind of had an impact on her career. And, you know, certainly it's had an impact on Liz Fair's career. But, uh, so yeah, that's, when I first think of Pitchfork, I think of those, the early OOs. I think that's a fair period. I, I think that that is the best period for the website. I think that everything that has come out after that has been as a result of those five years. Um, 
I didn't put it down just because I was still figuring out, like if I had spent more time on Pitchfork at that point, it probably would have been there for me. I started really regularly going to the website in 2005. Um, but the era that like, I just look back to now with a lot of nostalgia is 2013 to 2015 for a couple reasons. A lot of writers my age were starting to become prominently featured there. Uh, I was discovering a lot of writers that I still read to, uh, to this day. It was the first place I read Stephen Hyden, um, who's been on this podcast, who is a fantastic music writer and just thinker of music, really just good dude. Um, Lindsay Zolads, as I mentioned, uh, Jason Green, Mark Richardson wrote a ton of stuff. There's a lot of really, really, really strong writers that were emerging at Pitchfork in the early 2000s, but like 2013 to 15 is really when they kind of held down what that site meant. And overall, you know, I would go to the website every day. I still do, but I would go every day. And it was a time when a lot of my favorite albums of all time came out. And I remember reading some of the reviews, you know, for Vampire Weekends, Modern Vampires of the City, or Kurt Vile's Waking on a Pretty Days, or the War on Drugs, Lost in the Dream, Please Drink. Um, you know, these record reviews that like were writing about albums that like I had gotten to a point as a listener where I knew what I was looking for, but I also uh, knew what I was willing to like, listen beyond what I, what I enjoyed. And I was starting to really explore the type, different types of music that I like to hear and wanted to hear. They just did such a great job of summarizing albums and introducing me to stuff that, um, just kind of continued to blow my mind as a listener. I think the other thing that I really like about this era is this is really when hip hop starts to become much more regularly featured on Pitchfork for a while. It was like, Kanye West and Jay-Z were all that they would feature. And then they started featuring a lot of like smaller hip hop acts. And around like 2010, you get odd future that comes along. That really is this big crossover from a cultural standpoint and pitchfork feels like a hub for coverage of odd future. Um, Yeezus is still one of my favorite albums of all time, even though Kanye West has become a gigantic chud. Um, that record coming out in 2013 being reviewed on pitchfork felt like a really big moment. Kendrick Lamar's, um, to pimp a butterfly. I still remember when that review came out and on a Friday in March, 2015, and just being blown away by the record and blown away by the writing. So that era has always just been for me, just kind of like the center point of, of what that site could do. Um, how do you find that pitchfork has changed in the last few years. Um, obviously we both picked eras that are not in the last five to eight years. What are your thoughts on how it's changed and what are your thoughts on the shift of the site? Well, I mean, once kind of got the pause in it, you could hear the slow drip drip into irrelevance. I checked it every day regardless because they still cared about albums nobody else did, but now there are so many more options that didn't exist in 2004 or thereabouts. But also, when they started calling themselves like the most trusted name in music, because they were, they made the shift, which started to happen before Conde, 
They made the optimism shift, kind of optimism being the idea that, you know, we write indie music, we talk about indie, but there's value, there's quality in pop music, there's quality in what Taylor Swift does, there's quality in what Dua Lipa or Miley Cyrus or somebody who won a Grammy last night does. And they started to cover all that as well, which is all well and good, except there's a lot of other sites and or magazines and or television shows that you know cover that type of music just as well if not better and that's not really what you're going to pitchfork for in the first place like i don't really need to hear your opinion on lady gaga when i can get that from just about any place else they didn't do it badly it's not badly the reviews were still high quality but you know, just the shift to kind of being more everything to everyone kind of ended up diluting their main purpose to exist. And they would still cover, yeah. you know, ridiculous random ambient albums that you couldn't find anywhere else, but they would put those towards the bottom of the page, whereas the top of the page would be like the latest Taylor Swift record, for example. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, the poptimism, the, the, the most trusted name in music, you're absolutely right about all those. Like they want, they became part of the monoculture, which mm. it's, it's interesting today because there isn't like, like the most trusted name in music says who <laughs> there's, there's some writers I trust and some I don't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I feel like, um, that desire to become the music website, um, was understandable, aspirational. And, you know, speaking of, uh, Stephen Hyden, the day after the news of the layoffs happened, he released a fantastic episode of IndieCast where he talked about like the move that they made was the right move. The, the wrong move in the 2010s would have been to double down on writing about garage rock and weird ambient you know, uh, artists like that would not have gotten you Condé Nast. That would not have gotten you the listeners that would not have gotten you or readers that would not have gotten the economic opportunities. Um, what they've run into is just like an industry that is absolutely fucked in terms of its ability to maintain high quality writers and pay them a livable wage. Um, so I think that what they did was right, but to your point, it definitely diluted the importance of the site and it made it, it was very strange to get to a point where popular R&B music was being named the best albums of the year mm. when that was not the origins of the site. Um, and right or wrong, you know, that can be debated. It just, it, it lost the sense of, like there was always this interesting balance I felt like Pitchfork and this is why I love the 2013 to 2015 era. They would write about stuff that was happening in pop culture in a way that put their stamp on it. And then they became that pop culture. And so it became hard for them to put their stamp on it because they were just kind of putting out a list that reflected another site's list and another site's list. And to your point, a lot of those sites did things better than they did. That said, the counter to that is number one, you're right. There were a lot of really weird, really cool records that you could still find on Pitchfork that I think you and I discovered in a lot of ways um, over the last 10 years. But also, I'm probably not listening to Carly Rae Jepsen without Pitchfork endorsing her. I'm probably not listening to like Jesse Ware. Um, and this is just me personally. That's um, true. That's They did very good at kind of endorsing poppy 
cult artists with Carly Rae Jepsen and yeah. Jesse Ware. They're pop artists, but they don't play stadiums. They play like, you know, four or 5,000 seat venues. Yeah, right, theaters. And I think that like the move in 2019, they had like Taylor Swift day. I thought that was brilliant. Like I've always been, I've always appreciated her music. Um, I definitely would argue that her popularity and her critical acceptance has taken a step further, maybe not directly because of Pitchfork, but sites like that being like, okay, she's not just famous. She doesn't just have a bunch of hit singles. Like she writes really good songs and she crafts albums from a standpoint of like, all the boomer dudes that you guys, uh, you know, ogle over, you should probably give her a chance. Like, I can't deny that that didn't help me as a listener who enjoyed her to be like, okay, she's like being really taken seriously as a music, as, as a musician. So it's like, it's a give and take. Like, I, yeah. I wish that we could still have the pitchfork of old and in some, at, at times we'd have it, but I think overall it made this move that was necessary and kind of took away from what I loved about it. I wanted to hear what they, I mean, I wanted to read about what they gave folklore. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see where those records ended up on the year-end lists. And um, and I think that they've written about her really well. And I think that they've written about a lot of pop music really, really well. Um, it just, it changed the overall shape of how you approach the website for about the last five or six years. Um, last question on Pitchfork before we dive into a little bit of fish. How how have they helped you to understand uh, music and how to communicate mu- about music? Well, I mean, they kind of came around at a time when it let me know that there was a world outside of Rolling Stone and Spin. Like, for example, I loved and still love the uh, Bright Orange Spin Alternative Record Guide, which I think came out in 1995, and is out of print, but I mean, you can find used copies pretty easily online. And I would highly recommend it if you like Beyond the Pond. I've still got a very dog-eared copy on my bookshelf. And Spin at the time contained a lot of really brilliant, sarcastic writers that I really craved. And with the alternative record guy, they kind of went through, they took bands, went through their discography and assigned their discography like numbers one through ten. So I enjoyed reading their rankings. And then Pitchfork kind of took that and ran with it. It wasn't just 1 through 10. It was like 1 through 10 plus decimal numbers. So (laughs) that kind of picked up the gonzo writing that I really enjoyed from the Spin Alternative Record Guide and then made it more accessible, put it into a website talking about new music. As they were kind of going forward... I mean, Spin was, you know, still was being published as like an actual magazine for much of the 2000s. And I think they went online in like around 2010. I think they still exist in some way, shape or form in some, you know, like neutered fashion online. And really, Pitchfork for me was the next step, like the next wacky step up from Spin and or all the British music magazines like Q, NME, Mojo that I like going to Barnes Noble and paying like $8 for the import price to read. So that's, uh, you know, it'll always, I like wacky music journalism for nerds who care. I try to think of Beyond the Pond as being in a lineage of wacky music criticism for nerds who care. 
And that was Pitchfork, nutshell. Yeah, I mean, I said this at the top, but like the way that the site um, made music for me less about I have this album that I really like right now and I'm just listening to it over and over again into this is a cataloging experience. Like you are embarking on trying to understand the full scope of music and all of its nuances and all of its rabbit holes. And I flirted with that for a long time. And then when I was in Korea in 2009 and 2010, I just went all in, uh, when they put out the top 200 albums of the two thousands and I recognized I don't know, maybe 50 of the records. I was like, there's 150 records on here that I need to learn about. And I downloaded every single record. And I spent the next six months listening through the list to 200 to one. And basically like understanding my, uh, my era of music and all of the complexities within it. And it's shaped who I am as a listener today. Uh, I'm very list oriented. I'm very critical. Um, I have, uh, a lot of passion for music. Um, I have a lot of patience for music, but I also have really high expectations. And if something doesn't match my expectations, I want to understand why. And I want to talk about it and I want to, um, argue about it with people and people who care about it as much as I do. And at the end of the day, I want to throw a record on that will just blow my mind and show me some new shape of the human condition because that's kind of what I live for. And you got that out of pitchfork and understanding that there were lots of people out there who felt the same way. And that, you know, this idea of criticism, I remember when I first started reading pitchfork, like hearing from people that like, Oh, they're just hate everything. Oh, they're just so mean. Like I remember learning like the people that I know who love music the most and listen to the most music and consider music from varying angles and how it impacts them are the people that are most critical. And that's not to say that like a non-critical person can't be like that, but like that's where I found my people. And that's where I found like, you know, what made music really special to me. Um, and Pitchfork provided that on a mass scale that became the most popular music site of our, our time uh, in a lot of ways. And who knows what the future holds. All right. We are going to pivot here, you are actually hearing how the sausage is made here at Beyond the Pond um, because we were going to jump into a fish discussion, play some fish, and then come back and talk more pitchfork. But we are going to continue on with the pitchfork conversation. It seems to make more sense. Um, we're going to share three bands, three albums that we both discovered on pitchfork, uh, six in total. Uh, so there's a lot of music about to come here that. Uh, re scrambled our brains in a lot of ways, um, made us think about music in ways that, um, uh, are the reason why we're doing this here today. Um, and as we talked about, like at the top of this, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of reviews that have meant a lot to us, but there are also a lot of albums that, um, we discovered one way, shape or form, and it changed our lives in some ways. So Dave, what is your first record that you want to share? This is a record I actually already talked about earlier. This is McCluskey Do Dallas. We're going to listen to the song opening track, Lightsaber Cocksucking Blues. 
like I said, this is a band that I first read about in Pitchfork. I'm not sure how I would have learned about them were it not from Pitchfork. And it ended up becoming one of my favorite albums of all time, my favorite album by that band, and kind of responsible for one of the greatest rock shows I had ever seen. Um, I also uh, I reviewed one of their records, one of his records, Andy Falcus. He put out a record uh, as Future of the Left, their second album called Travels of Myself and Another. I didn't like it. I actually gave it a pretty negative review. And up until that point, the site I was writing for Coke Machine Glow had given universally strong reviews to McCluskey and Future of the Left albums. And in so, I think he was surprised when he saw that review. And he actually, like, he DM'd me on the website and was like, what the fuck, man? So that was kind of <laughs> the closest I got to feeling like a pitchfork writer. I felt bad because he kind of did, like, a bullet point of things in my review where I, like, made incorrect assumptions. It's like, oh, man. Well, buy the ticket, take the ride. So, but yes, McCluskey do Dallas. Incredible fucking record. So I'm going to talk about a record that um, I I still remember the experience I had reading this record review. I got up, um, I was waiting tables from late 2008 to spring 2009. I was living back home, saving some money. I just graduated college and I was getting ready to go overseas to Korea. And I remember getting up one morning, making some coffee, opening up my computer, going to Pitchfork. And this was January 5th, 2009. Great records came out in early January in 2009. What a concept. What a world. You have to wait until like, April 20th for the first great record to come out every year nowadays. Um, This was Animal Collective's Meriwether Post Pavilion. I was drawn to reading about this um, because I was a fan of Panda Bear. I had not really listened to a ton of Animal Collective at this point in time. The album title, Meriwether Post Pavilion, made me go, huh? That's a venue that fish plays at. What's going on here? And I opened it up and I remember it, it had that, you know, the, the three red arrows pointing up where which meant, oh, this is best new music. Cool. It's not just a best new music. This is a 9.6 best new music. Wow. This review feels like a breaking point because you just don't get 9.6s anymore. It just doesn't have, it's like a reissue record that comes out. They are very stingy with anything above like an 8.8 at this point in time at Hitchfork. And I just, I bought this album immediately on iTunes and I downloaded it and I listened to it and I was just like, holy shit, this is some of the most incredible music I've ever listened to in my entire life. Uh, and it kind of launched me on, I mean, in some cases it helped launch me on this uh, period of exploration that I'm still on to this day. Um, I can kind of trace who I was at this point in my life. Um, back to uh 2009 and i just want to read really quick from mark richardson uh he he concludes his review music obsessives talk a lot about originality whether it's important or why having a new sound should or shouldn't matter in recent years some fantastic albums have turned a number of people off for being retreads which has sparked some interesting discussions this album which finds animal collective completely owning their unique sound feels like the crucial next step in that conversation. 
what they've constructed here is a new kind of electropop. One which is machine generated and revels in technology, but is also deeply human, never drawing too much attention to its digital nature. It's of the moment and feels new, but it's also striking in its immediacy and comes across as friendly and welcoming. Animal Collective have spent the decade following their own path, figuring out what their music is capable of, while also working to bring more listeners into their world. On Meriwether Post Pavilion, their commitment has paid off tremendously. Amazing review, amazing point in my life, amazing record. What's up next for you, Dave? So I've got Dismemberment Plan, Emergency and I from 1999. Listen to the opening track, A Life of Possibilities. This was a band that I didn't know existed until I read Pitchfork, but Brent DiCrescenzo's review from September 30th, 1999 is still up on the website. He has a short review and a long review. The short review says, if you consider yourself a fan of groundbreaking pop, go out and buy this album right now. Gow, get up, go. thought, okay, that's all I need to hear. So... <laughs> They, this Remembrance Plan, are a band from Washington, D.C. Um, kind of, I think their earlier stuff might have been on Discord Records, uh, like the label run by Fugazi's uh, Ian McKay. Um, their brand of music is very, extremely rhythmic. The rhythm section with Joe Easy and er- Easley and Eric Axelson, out of control rhythm section, jumpy, jumpy, post-punk, kind of like heavier talking heads music led by uh, the very goofy, droll, sarcastic Travis Morrison. This album came out in 1999, and Pitchfork almost kind of put this band on the map in a way. Then the follow-up record in 2001, Change, I might even like a little bit better. So, like I said earlier, it was pretty shocking in 2004 when they basically destroyed Travis Morrison's career with a 0.0. You'd have thought that having their last two albums incredibly favorably reviewed on Pitchfork would have granted you a little bit of some kind of grace period, but that was not the case. But um, certainly Pitchfork was instrumental in making me a fan of uh, this band who... um, they got back together in 2013 for a reunion, put out a record called Uncanny Valley, which I rather enjoyed. Um, and I think they broke up, but they may have gotten back together for a song on um, a cover song and like a compilation of DC bands or something. I don't know. I kind of heard about them again in the news recently. But anywho. I saw them in 2014. Oh, you did? Yeah, they played uh the hang- the hideout festival right before the war on drugs ah okay September 2014 yes I, I saw them at terminal five in 2013 as part of the reunion tour they were excellent and again the rhythm section is to kill for so dismemberment plan check them out i forget when we talked about them on uh beyond the pond it was an early episode but it was it was a it was they're a foundational indie rock band. If you have not heard them, yes, drop yes. everything, go and do so. Um, you talk about you know a band that you discover because of Pitchfork, and then like you love a later record more. Um, that's this next band for me. Uh, Two thousand nine, when I was 
in early 2010 when I was uh, just really diving into this website on a day-to-day basis and spending a lot of time on music blogs and starting to dabble in music writing myself. Um, I came across the record Cryptograms by Deer Hunter and it just sounded wild, psychedelic, kind of Sid Barrett, garage rock um, with like a lot of industrial noise and some ambient music. I was blown away and I was like, this band fucking rules. Uh, but they were, you know, like at the time, a band amidst a thousand other bands I was trying to learn about and and discover and, and better understand. And fast forward about 18 months, I was in Santa Barbara, California with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now working on uh, my brother-in-law's house. Uh, and we were about to move to Portland, Oregon and we were, you know, working, but at that kind of casual pace when you don't really have to clock in, you're kind of just working as the help. So I had a very laid back existence, if you will, living in California for a couple of months, which is very nice. I recommend anyone live in Southern California for a period in their life. It's just a wonderful place to exist. Um, almost too nice. Um, and I would go to Pitchfork, uh, each day. And download records that I found interesting and listened to them while I painted a house, sanded, cleaned things up, installed, uh, tongue and groove, flooring, lots of different, you know, odd jobs, a lot of podcasts, a lot of records. And I remember opening up Pitchfork one day and they were reviewing Deer Hunter's Halcyon Digest. And I had no idea Deer Hunter was putting on a record and had those three arrows, knew his best new music. Which was big because Deer Hunter at that point in time had not had a best new music on Pitchfork. And I opened it up, it's 9.2. And um, <clears throat> the subheadline is Deer Hunter made a record about the joy of early music discovery. And in re-invis- revisiting that youthful enthusiasm, they brilliantly rekindle it. Um, this record marks a distinctly different approach for the band, more streamlined and stripped down and in its sparest moments, it echoes the stark intimacy and one-take effortlessness of records like Neil Young's Tonight's the Night or Chris Bell's I Am the Cosmos. Uh, in the past, Deer Hunter's gifts for garbled sonics and Cox's stream of con- consciousness methods made it easy to downplay the group's lyrical ability. That's not the case here. Whether by Punt, who sings two, who sings lead on two of Halcyon Digest's best songs, or Cox's Deer Hunter songwriting congeals into a style all its own, with lyrics moving front and center. Ultimately, this record made this band, or this review made this band, suddenly a very serious band in my mind, um, and it just felt like it like lifted the perception around Deer Hunter. And I remember downloading this record and listening to it in the first notes of earthquake, you were just transported to a completely different dimension. Um, I was listening to this record again this week and I was talking with good friend of the pod, Ben Greenfield. And I just was like, I wish more bands imitated this sound. Like, I feel like this is a sound locked in time that deer hunter came upon and no one's ever touched it. And yet at the same time, like fucking chill wave became the music that everyone imitated out of the early 2010s. And like deer hunters approach on this record is just like a singular thing. Um, I love this record. I love this review, this, you know, just like open my eyes in a huge way. So, um, deer hunters, Halcyon digest, uh, one of a tentpole BTP records. If, if we ever start inducting records into the hall of fame, which I just 
thought of that. There's, there's another podcast that does that. I don't know if we want to step on their toes, but if we ever inducted records into the BTP Hall of Fame, that would be first ballot for me. Um, what do you got, Dave? Yeah, Halsey and Dye just fucking rules. That would definitely be into the Beyond the Pine Hall of Fame. Um, our last album I'm going to talk about here is Primary Colors by the band The Horrors. Let's listen to the song, Who Can Say. So, I read about the first Horrors album on Pitchfork. It got like a six-something. They were really gothy-looking British kids, some kind of like goth punk. It didn't, it didn't seem very special. It didn't seem very interesting, and I kind of put them out of my mind. But then I saw later, a few months, maybe like two years later, the Horrors would put out this record, Primary Colors, where the cover is like kind of like a photo of them, but it's yellow. It's kind of faded. looks a little mysterious, a little interesting. And this album, they gave a 7.6, and the review was by Stuart Berman, who does a lot of reviews uh, for a long time. Good writer, very knowledgeable guy. I usually tend to trust his opinions. I know he's probably the foremost... King Gizzard and the Lizard Scholar on uh, Pitchfork. So, much like you said with Halcyon Digest, was kind of the record that Deer Hunter started to take music seriously. As it turns out, Primary Colors was very much with the horrors, decided that they wanted to have some semblance of a career and look towards entirely different influences. This album, there's a lot of Jesus and Mary Chain, there's My Bloody Valentine, there's Spiritualized. It really kind of starts their ascent into what people would call a record collector rock, which is to say a lot of tent poles for dudes in the mid-40s, much like myself. But the Pitchfork review is structured in such a way that made me think that I really should try to give this band a second chance. And it ended up probably being my favorite album from 2009. And really one of my favorite albums of the past 20 years. I still listen to that album on a fairly regular basis and they've had some very good ones since the one after that skying was good luminous which ian cohen reviewed is also a very good album and i've uh, seen them live a few times and they also put on a very good show but had it not been for this pitchfork review of this record it's questionable as to whether i really would have paid much attention to it but i'm happy that i did so my last record is kind of the record that if I think of the last decade, like helped push me in a direction <clears throat> glacially at first, but now it's just like, there's no controlling it. Uh, and that is, uh, towards the world of jazz, which is kind of where I just like judge all music at this point in time. Like, does it do to me what the best jazz records do? Because like, that's a really fucking high bar, but my God, once you get it, it's like, it's a drug that you cannot get enough of. And it's really hard when you hear some of the best wild improvisation with brass to then go back and be like, cool, play me a G chord. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's hard. It's hard, you know? Um, no knocking, but it's just, it's hard. Once you get that taste, it's very hard. And that is... Uh, Kamasi Washington's The Epic, which uh, was reviewed on May 8th, 2015. This was his triple album, My God, an 8.6 review on Pitchfork. Uh, 
review was written by Seth Coulter Walls. Uh, this was the band that Kamasi played with on To Pimp a Butterfly, which at that point in time was top five record of the year for me. Ended up being my number three record of 2015. So it, it, it represented this, like at that point in time, I didn't listen to any jazz. Like I'd heard Bitches Brew. I'd heard some Coltrane, but like, I didn't know shit. And I, I, I was all, I need guitars, my music. Like I just needed it. And if it wasn't guitars, it was ambient music. And I remember reading about this record and just being like, okay, I'm going to fucking try it. And it took me a while. It's a lot. It's a very long record. It's like two and a half hours. And it's, it's the epic. very diverse. It's the epic. There's a lot of concepts. There's a lot of ideas. And at first I just felt like I was drowning, like I was swimming without any sort of, uh, understanding of the shore, but it's been a record that over the last 10 years, I kept going back to, and I ended up seeing Kamasi open up for, um, Herbie Hancock in 2019. And it's, it's one of the best concerts I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, his work, I just constantly go back to and am blown away by, but more than anything, it unlocked jazz for me in a way that I don't think any other music could have at that point in time. It made it modern, but also timeless. And it made me understand like where are the barriers, what happens when an artist goes over the barriers, what are kind of the rules here? What happens when an artist breaks the rules here? And that was, I needed that context to be able to like fully dive in. And so with where I am as a listener now, with where my musical styles go, with where my musical interest goes, like this is a bedrock moment. And this is something that came directly out of Pitchfork. Again, it was glacial. It took me a long time to like really turn it, to really get to a point where like that was the music I wanted to listen to on a day-to-day basis. But it all started for me with uh, Kamasi Washington's The Epic. So we're going to do a mashup here of a few songs that we threw out um, from our recommendations here. And then we'll be back to chat a little bit about the
flying and flying as fearful of me. And I'm covering my eyes when she told me the news, telling me I'm with my lightsaber cocksucking. And I'm aching from fucking too much And I know what I do And it all points to you Did you sell me to Wanderlust? And I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful of flying And flying is fearful of me And I'm covering my eyes when she told me the news Turning me on with my lightsaber cocksucking
Okay, hope that you uh, enjoyed hearing the music. Pitchfork inspired songs that we chose. Now this is we're going to get to the fish portion of the podcast a bit late. But Brian, um, I'm going to ask you this question because I know that we kind of feel somewhat differently. But how do you think that Pitchfork covered fish, and why do you why and how do you think they could have done it better? Yeah, I mean, I think. Like, there's two thoughts here. There's one that, like, you have two separate areas to, like, communicate about music. And you had, like, Pitchfork friends and Pitchfork Twitter and Fish friends and Fish Twitter. And some of those aligned, some of them didn't. And in some cases, like, that made, like, it simpler to have conversations around both things. But I always felt like, especially when Fish came back in 3.0 and especially when they started covering indie rock and they really started showcasing this alternative pathway for success and career longevity in music that it made sense for at some point fit pitchfork to come around and say, okay, there's something happening here. That's interesting. Maybe we don't love all of it, but like clearly there's something happening here that is interesting from a musical standpoint, both business-wise, culturally, and musically. We should, from a journalistic standpoint, at least investigate this. And kind of the furthest they got was Sam Sadomsky kind of got the job of, um, he was kind of the, uh, the bird and, the, uh, the cave, you know, just like exploring unknown terrain and taking a beating, uh, as a result of it, he, he reviewed big boat and, um, Sigma Oasis, which reviewing big boat as the first piece of content on pitchfork.com about fish, aside from a few snide comments over the years. Like if you searched fish, you basically couldn't find any reference to them on pitchfork for a long time. Um, the canary in the coal mine was the was what I was what I was trying to say. Um like that was just a weird choice to me to lead off any coverage of fish and then to never really return to them, even as Fish released the Baker's Dozen as a full box set. Pitchfork reviews live albums, reissues all the time. Uh Fish put out archival releases over the last five, six years, which is where you really understand and can explore uh, who fish is they reviewed two studio albums one of which we really like but also like without context of the band's career doesn't make a ton of sense as a good record and one that i think we would both agree upon is the worst fish album that has been made to date and the worst kind of stamp of who fish is in the world and they never explored like what really pushed people to understand this band and so my my rationale here is like I feel as though it would have been a really interesting challenge for pitchfork writers to try to understand fish, even if they were deeply critical. I think that there's enough going on there. There's a reason why you and I have put out a hundred and almost 30 episodes about this band while also talking about other music. I think we both know music and we understand what makes good music and we're critical of fish when fish needs to be critical of, uh, made critical of, but we're also, appreciating what the band does from a transgressive standpoint. I think that there was an opportunity there for pitchfork to really dig in 
understand what's going on, while also bringing on a lot of readers who are some of the most dedicated, passionate, communicative, engaged readers and listeners and communicators about music anywhere. I think that they just kind of pushed them out in a lot of ways that never fully made sense to me and always felt like year after year, this kind of endless lazy joke on a band that was really trying hard, really successful and really kind of challenging themselves late into their career that was worthy of some sort of a, uh, uh, an examination. That's a lot. So I'm going to pause. What are your thoughts and counter? Do you agree in any sort of way? Where, where do you, where do you fall on kind of, should they have covered them more? Well, I think early on when I started reading Pitchfork in the early two thousands, I didn't really care that fish wasn't covered. I mean, at least not at first. I mean, Fish, they're hippies. And indie rockers, right or wrong, in the early 2000s, tended to think of hippies as silly, kind of everything wrong. Yeah, totally. Everything wrong with the summer of love. I don't blame some of the, like, you know, crasser Fish jokes. I mean, also not for nothing that Fish really didn't exist for a good portion of Pitchfork's heyday, having broken up in, like, 2004 and got back in 2009. Totally. I mean, also, I didn't really mind Pitchport not covering fish because, you know, when I was in college, I kind of got to move back and forth between two worlds. When I was in college, I was writing weekly record reviews for um, the Rutgers Review, which wasn't like the actual official Rutgers paper. That was the Daily Targum, but the Rutgers Review was kind of like the cool kids. And I just knew that I wasn't, you know, kind of like writing fish for this thing would have been kind of off limits, but I got to write about other things I learned to love, like the verve and spiritualize and, you know, like shoegaze bands. I got to talk about indie rock and they knew that I like fish, but I could go between worlds. I had my fish friends. I had the indie rock friends. There was a fish type house off campus. There was the indie rock house off campus where being in the late 90s, I got to see bands try to sound like thrill jockey bands. Like, there's everyone had a band that wanted to sound like Tortoise or Seeing Cake or whatnot. So, you know, because I kind of felt that's fine. I can put fish in one box and put indie rock in the other box. Also, I keep talking about this thing called Coke Machine Glow. So, that was a website like a Pitchfork Junior that was in action for, I want to say, 2003 to. 2015. It still exists online. You can still go to the website, copemachineglow.com. In fact, last year we released uh, an anthology through Archway Editions, so I'm kind of a published author. That's kind of cool. Uh, That's cool. Yeah. For uh, Cope Machine Glow, I wrote about plenty of indie records, but I also wrote about Undermine. I think I reviewed Trey's solo album, Shine. They were always kind of starved for content, so they didn't really more than happy to let me write about fish. But even still, that was kind of, um, you know, I got to flex more of the indie side. Although it's interesting is that they all, we all love my morning jacket and we love Wilco, loved MMJ. And that was kind of people started to gravitate more towards the fish when something like my morning jacket became popular. That was also the website where, uh, where, Lindsay Zolad's got her start 
writing alongside us at Coat Machine Glow, and we all knew that she could write circles around us and was destined for bigger and and much greater things. Also, uh, with the writer Callum Marsh, does a lot of stuff for GQ, New York Times pieces. He was a Coat Machine Glow writer. Um, you know, we had... It was the farm system. Some of us went on to the majors. It was pretty interesting time to be writing about music. Also interesting was that certainly by the mid-2015, 20, 2017, Pitchfork really started to cover the Grateful Dead. In a exactly. way. Yeah. And Fish never hasn't and still hasn't gotten the level of the coverage that the Grateful Dead got with Pitchfork. I mean, I think kind of Pitchfork leaned into the dead because kind of like Cosmic Americana plus heroin plus being contemporaries with the Velvet Underground somehow seemed more sexy and dark than the travails of the suburban New Jersey, New England kids who came of age in the 70s. That was fish. Plus, because the (laughs) dead no longer existed, that kind of there was a historical aspect to it. But, you know, you kind of went from having Jesse Jarner write about like a Bob Weir solo record to like, you know, a big deep dive into many errors of the Grateful Dead that Fish never got. Didn't really bother me, just, you know, something to kind of point out that they were given a disparate treatment. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel, because there, there is a part of me that always liked the two worlds aspect. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like, I, I wrote for... um the site Oregon Music News in 2010, 2011, when I was living in Portland. And I was kind of known from a writing standpoint as the fish fan who has good taste in music. And it felt like a, you know, it felt like a, a joke, but also like a source of pride, you know, because like, I just, I, I, I accepted at that point in my life, like the larger public and the larger like area of, you know, the larger group of people that listen to what I thought was really good music. Most of them don't like fish. I love fish, but I also love this other music. So it was an interesting, like, you know, two worlds to jump between. I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, twofold. Like I I said it, I won't go into too much detail, but like, I wish for their writers that they had a chance to really explore it. and, And I would have loved to have seen, um, how they handled fish. If there was, you know, ever an attempt to, especially the live stuff. Like I think just writing about two late period fish records feels like totally miss Like why even do it? It has never made any sense to me why they would write about those, uh, two albums other than to get clicks, which I, I get it. That's the business. But like, what, is, what stamp is that actually putting on this band? And I, so I would love to have read their their work on the live mu- the, the the live shows. You know, you take like a great live fish release and have someone explore it uh, in depth and explore what's trying to go, what's what's happening in that in that uh, release from one of their writers in that voice. I think would have been really interesting. Um, but I also think like, I mean, outside of Rob Mitchum and um, Wally Holland, like, let's be honest, like fish writing isn't very good. Um, I think the best coverage of fish is via podcasts. There hasn't been like a really strong, other than the fish book, which is an oral history. There hasn't been a really strong piece of writing about this band. And I think that they deserve it. I think that they deserve that rock critic exploration, you know, the 
400, 500 page book that really like gets in the weeds on this band's history and their influences and the different eras and musicology. And we're not- And aside from Rob Mitch, yeah. I was just going to say, we're not counting the, the Fish Companion put together by the Mockingbird Foundation just because that's we're like- not. <laughs> We're not. No, no. I mean, that's not. like a guidebook. Yeah, that's exactly. a guidebook. It's great. You know? Like, yeah, it's a guidebook. Right. Um. And, you know, I think there is something slightly problematic about most writing about fish is done by their fans. Like there hasn't been that like critical perspective of, um, the, there the hasn't, park, 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 the park Peterberg book didn't, was terrible. got nowhere close. No. Like that was, that was a surface level, uh, here's an advertisement for fish, you know, as a marketing campaign, it was not a serious book about this band no there has to be like a david brown fish book right we need that um and and i felt like you know just the way that pitchfork operates that could have been the chance alas it is not who knows if it's going to happen if it ever will happen but um it's something i i do personally want i do wish that they would do um last question before we get into the music here because we're going to recommend some fish that has crossover appeal if you could have a Pitchfork Sunday review about any live official release or any studio album or both, what would you pick? Billy Breeds. That would be a good one. Yep. The the, uh, the creation of that record, the collection of songs, I think it's still probably Fish's finest collection of songs on wax. The fact that they recorded up at Bearsville and Woodstock and used Steve Lillywhite. It's just, to me, that's kind of where they came into their own as studio artists making an album. Whereas all the records before that, including Hoist, were, you know, fine collections of fish music, good songs, good singles, lots of stuff to hear at the show. But, you know, Billy Breeze was the leap. Yeah. Having, like, Andy Cush write about that as he drives through the Hudson Valley would be, and just like talks about small towns there and what it must've been like when the band was recording that. I mean, I feel like, and I'll share my answer here in a second, but like, I was just reading a review that you wrote about Tim and Paula's currents on Coke machine glow. And mm. you open it with this line that I love. Uh, it's an affliction that attacks otherwise healthy music fans in the 27 to 32 age range usually sandwiched between two epiphanies of, hey, Hollow Notes actually were kind of awesome. And why, yes, I would love to see Huey Lewis perform sports in full with all founding members of the news. As as inevitable as it is unavoidable, I'm talking about the Phil Collins critical reevaluation. That is, like that sentiment that you're talking about is very, very deep music nerd of (laughs) this thing was good, unquestionably, but then it fell out of fashion, so we thought it was bad. But now we think it's good again, and so now we're going to make up for time and try to understand it in the way that music is, you know, made today. And I feel like a really good Sunday review of Billy Breathes could do that for Fish, where you'd have skeptical people going in and be like, "What the fuck is this?" And then they'd come out being like, "Oh, I need to learn more about Fish. I'm wrong." And and I want those motherfuckers to be able to to admit that they're wrong. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, my pick would be uh, six fourteen two thousand Fukuoka. Oh, okay. Fish release. Um, I think it's the most indie rock and pitchfork 
It's the most Radiohead fish show ever. That second set, you get a really, really good writer who understands that type of music and is willing to accept fee, split up and melt, heavy things. You know, the lyrical content that you're going to get from a fish show and appreciate the deep seated musical nature of that overall show. Um, I would love to hear, I'd love to read what someone has to say about it. Um, so the last thing that we're going to do here before we go is we're going to play a few choice cuts of what we consider the most indie rock fish jams of all time. We have a big list. We're just going to read through this and comment a little bit on it, but then we will tell you what the four jams are that we're going to play. Dave, what do, what do we think are some of the most indie rock fish jams of all time and why? We have November 28th, 1994, Tweezer. December 12th, 1995, Down With Disease, of course, being from the Dunk, Dunkin' Donuts down in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, the November 18th, 1996, Simple. August 17th, 1997, Down With Disease, the Went version. Uh, December 16th, 1999, Tweezer. Of course, the huge, epic gong, July 30th, 2003, Sent in Subtle Sounds from uh, Camden, New Jersey. December 30th, 2012, Down With Disease. Of course, uh, being the 1230 show at the Garden. Brian, what do we have for the rest of the list? Yeah, and I mean, those first, uh, we're going to play a couple out of those yeah. first few, but I mean, just like that abstract, almost like tortoise-like jamming, I hear across a lot of those. The um, 12, 16, tweezer reminds me a lot of TNT. Um, but the 720, 2014 Ghost, uh, where Trey is channeling my bloody Valentine in, uh, and Krautrock and, um, Spiders, Kid Smoke is just amazing stuff. The 730, 14 Fuego, where Trey sounds like Ira Kaplan. It is so scronky and weird and aggressive. Uh, the 1230, 2015 Bathtub Gin, another Spiders, Kid Smoke jam. That is the most... Kraut rock the most Kraut rock. None more Kraut rock. It's just, oh, just put that one in my veins, that motoric beat. Uh, the 1023-2018 Mike song, as well as the 1023-2018 Ghost, those are very, very kind of sonic youth in quality, very, very wild stuff. Yeah, that um, Mike's is a awesome melodic C major jam. It just like doesn't need the second jam because the first jam just goes out there. It's oh, amazing, yeah. and it's yeah. a very unique take on Mike's song. And then the ghost, it feels like Trey and Fishman are having a battle with each other. It's very punk rock. It's very, very weird. Um, the 10, 20, 20, 21 Ruby Waves that gets into this like very hypnotic uh, indie groove space. The 421, 23 Blazon, and the 10, 10, 23 Mike song, two jams that get into very airy, ethereal, uh, Jamie XX uh, meets... Stephen Malkovich meets the Hacks and Cloak. I don't know. It's just very weird, uh, noisy, drifting uh, ambient space out of those that I absolutely love. So we're going to play the 1118.96 Simple, the 1216.99 Tweezer, the 720.2014 Ghost, and the 421.23 
Blazon to give you kind of a spectrum of this band playing in an indie rockish style ish emphasis on the ish. Hope you enjoy this, and we'll be back to close out the show for sure.
Thank you for hanging with us on this long and winding and confessionally confessional laced BTP. Um, I think this this happens with every episode nowadays. It's it's the nature of us planning episodes over the course of a month. I always go in being like, this will be like a 90 minute episode. And we come out two and a half hours later. Um, but we had a lot to say. Mm. This is a freaking website that like, you know, websites are kind of dead. They aren't, they aren't the way that they aren't what they used to be. And, uh, Pitchfork was a website. It was a gentleman's website that you went to daily and got your content. And so we had a lot to talk about. Plus we had to, uh, we are obligated to include some fish. So we had to, you know, by contract, um, fish ink demands it. And so we have to throw some in there. And so we did that and it was fun. Um, this was a great episode, Dave. Did you have a good time? I enjoyed this episode. It was a long episode, windy episode. I think we got our points across. And I think that, uh, if you're still listening to beyond the pond episode 127, you'll have found something to enjoy here. But yeah, Fish Inc. demands that we have some semblance of fish content. Otherwise, I'm not going to get my. They're not going to give me tickets to the Sphere. It's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, the comp. My comp package to Mexico <clears throat> only happens if uh, I include some fish content in my podcast. So yeah, follow your dreams out there, guys. Start your own fish podcast, and you know who knows, good things could happen. You too um, can get free tickets to the Sphere. We're kidding. <laughs> we will be back at some point in March. I don't know when. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Um, whereas last time we were like, we know what the next episode is. I don't think we know what this is going to be. I do know that at some point this year we're going to have to talk at length about 1994. It's going to have to happen. Mm. We're probably going to have to talk about 2004. Probably going to have to happen. I don't know if that's next time. We're going to see. We're going to go away for a little bit. Next time we do this, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll play Mexico. I will be in Mexico. If there's a Mexico jam, maybe that's what we'll cover. We'll see. Um, until then, though, we hope you guys are well. Um, I can't take the kumbaya away from you. You got to do it. No. Good night, good night. We hope you sleep well. Good night, good night, said Miss Clavel. So we'll get together. We will read from Adeline. We will say kumbaya. We will hold hands. And we will continue to go beyond the pond.
Osiris. <laughs> <laughs>